Well, um, here we are again, right? Here we are again, gathered together on a Sunday morning. I am glad uh, you chose to be here with us this morning to worship our God and our Father. He is good. We sang that over and over this morning. He is good. He is good. There's no doubt about it. He is good. And uh, we are here uh, in week five of, uh, of this series, the summer series. We're calling it Out of the Box. And uh, we're taking questions every week out of the box. And we're looking at the questions. We're looking at the scripture that is involved with the questions. What does God say about it? That's the question that we're asking, all right? What does God say about this? Um, and, uh, and let me just say that you people do not uh, beat around the bush. You get right to the point, all right? You, you ask the question right away. There it is. And uh, that is the case again this morning. We're not messing around with whatever. We're, we're getting right to the point. And uh, so I'm going to read the question or the statement. Uh, that, that's what it is. Um, so let's just put it up there. Here's what it is, all right? Uh, it says, I would like to see a sermon on the gay, bi, trans community. How God views them and whether they're going to hell. Whoa! Watch out, right? Because it's coming at you. It's coming at you. It's coming at you hot. Um, uh, we don't mess around. We get straight to the point. We want to know, what is the deal with this? And this is an issue that uh, it's an issue for a lot of people. It's, a, it's an issue that people feel strongly about. And it's a very personal issue for a lot of people. And so um, we're going we're gonna to get into it. And uh, before we, we get to the scripture this morning, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, number one, I don't do messages on issues like this, all right? It's just not a thing. I just That's not how I approach the scripture. We'll talk about that in just a second again. Um, but there's a couple other points that I want to hit as well. Number one, some of you are probably uncomfortable right now already. It's okay, all right? God created humans to be sexual beings, and we can talk about it in church. It's okay. It's part of God's plan. It's part of his creation. Um, and so we can talk about it. Number two, we will not be able to exhaust this entire issue this morning as we talk about this thing right now. Um, so I understand that this is part of a continuing conversation for us, all right? It always will be. Number three, hear me all the way out to the end, all right? Hear me out all the way to the end. Do not assume that you know where things are going or where they're going to end up. Or do not do not say, listen, I've already made up my mind on all this stuff, so I'm checking out. Um, because I do or I do not agree, whatever, whatever um, we're going to go with. And then number four, as we talk about this issue, do not lose sight of the fact that you have no idea who might be dealing with this, who might be wrestling with, with this in, in your life and in your church um, and, and so on, right? This is not an outside to church issue that's going on over there and they are dealing with it. This is an issue uh, in the church, and, and you don't know who's, who's wrestling with these things. Um, so don't assume, don't lose sight of the fact that, that you might have people sitting right next to you that, that, are, that are wrestling with this, all right? Um, but if you picked up on anything in the last couple of years about the way we preach, about the way I preach, um, I don't just take an idea and then have a few scriptures that line up with that idea and we go from there. No, I take the scripture and I want to look at the scripture, I want to break the scripture down and let the scripture guide us um, as, as we go through this and let the Holy Spirit, um, through that inspiration, do that. So um, we're going to do that again this morning. There's a couple of scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, there's, there's like five scriptures in the whole Bible that talk about homosexuality. Two of them are in the Old Testament, three of them are in the New Testament. The new ones in the New Testament are uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32, 
That's where we're actually going to be this morning. But we're also talking about 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And then the third one is in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. Okay? So we're going to start out with Romans chapter 1. And this morning, it's, we're going to be all over the place in this, okay? So we're going to read uh, a couple of verses to start off with. We're going to read Romans 1, 24 through 27. But then we're going to jump, uh, we'll jump back to Romans 8, or 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 18. And then we'll actually end up at the uh, 28 through whatever. And then we're going to go back to verse 20. So we're all mixed up in that sense. Um, but it's all from the same, same chapter. And I want, to, I want to do that for a reason. Because... Um, well, we'll get there. Let's read, let's read Romans chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 24, okay? It says, Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the, womb, of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Men uh, with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. All right, so that's where we're going to stop right now, Fred. Okay? And the reason that I want to stop there is because when, when people read, the, when people talk about the issue of homosexuality, they will take those verses and they'll stop. And they'll say, all right, that's, that's, that's what it says right there, right? Uh, the scripture, in my understanding, is very clearly addressing homosexuality. Uh, we cannot get around it. It says women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Uh, and in the same way men did also, they abandoned the natural function of the woman and burdened their desire toward one another. All right? That same-sex relationship, that same-sex attraction um, and, uh, and it's it, homosexuality in that way. That's what Paul is describing. You can't get around, okay? You cannot get around. But I wish that we could read all of chapters 1 through 3 this morning. We're not going to. You might be surprised. But I'm not going to. <coughs> chapters, chapters 1 through 3 in Romans, because there is so much more that, that goes into the context of that scripture and what I believe that Paul is actually trying to communicate with the people in Rome, these Christians in Rome. Because when we read just a couple of those verses that we read, uh, it's, again, that's what most people do uh, when they're looking at this issue. Reading just those verses, it feels very much like Paul is addressing this singular issue at this moment right now, with, with these specific group of, this specific group of people, right? Um, these specific men and women did such and such, therefore God gave them over to these passions and these unnatural relationships, okay? And then it ends with this verse right here. They will receive the due penalty of their error. And that goes back then to those Old Testament scriptures where it says it's an abomination. And Leviticus says that anything one being caught doing such things should be put to death, stoning, all of that stuff, right? Um, and so, which of course that leads us to death and hell. Because that's, that's what some passages that address this, homosexual, or this issue of homosexuality say that it deserves death, right? And what happens is it becomes a weapon. These verses become a weapon. Like all these other scriptures that people use from within the church to target whatever whatever's being discussed. And in this case, it's homosexuality and, and, and people who deal with homosexuality. But I'd like to point out in the verses leading up to verse 24 that we just started, Paul says in verse 18, 
Romans 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So before Paul gets to what we just read in verse 24, and what he's describing as homosexual activity, he's addressing all ungodliness, and he's addressing all unrighteousness, all, not specific this thing, not a specific group of people, and even, and even in the term that he uses, he starts to say they and them, and they did this, and then God gave them over. It's like a generic term, all right? Who is they and them in there? It's not a specific uh, uh, group of people that he's talking about. He is not, it's not a target of those particular people with that particular sin. This scripture, when you look at the whole of it, when you look at the whole of it, it is about the depravity of all humanity, okay? Is it about the depravity of all humanity and not necessarily these specific sins, though they are included in that. And we can see that when we continue into verse 28. I told you we're jumping around. But this comes after the first section that we read, right? Verse 28, it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God then gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, and greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And all they, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Okay. So the whole picture of this scripture is everybody who's filled with unrighteousness, okay? It's, it's all unrighteousness. And then this, this discussion of homosexual activity that Paul says, it's set in the broader context of this teaching on the depravity of humanity, okay? Paul continues on in chapters 2 and 3, he says in, in Romans, he, he just goes on to describe how the entire world uh, is guilty of sin, that none is righteous. He goes on to say that all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? We know that, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he does that saying whether these specific behaviors of sin are listed in these lists or not, because these are not exhaustive lists, Okay? So as we talk about this issue of how does God see the gay community, we can ask our first question this morning. First question is this, is homosexuality a sin? Yes. Yes. I don't, I don't believe there's any way around it. Okay? I don't think we can get around that in any way. It's included in this scripture with Romans in this list of sins, just like it's included in 1 Corinthians. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes this, he says, or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? There it is again. And there it is again in the context of unrighteousness. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul said. And so going back to Romans and looking at that scripture, I don't believe that homosexual relationships 
homosexual desire or activity is what God originally intended for humanity. It's not. Because when you look at the language of that whole section of scripture that Paul is using, he's not just talking about homosexuality. He's talking about the whole world. He's talking about the fall of human nature. He's talking about the idea of where we exchanged what God designed and what God intended and what God created for other things. Okay? And so adding more context to the scripture that we started, that we started with, Romans 1, verse 20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, so we're going all the way back to creation, okay? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, though through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Who's without excuse? They, who's they? Everybody. Right? For even though they knew God, and we can say, who knew God? Everybody. In, in, a, in a sense, right, everybody knew God there's without excuse, but I think also specifically Adam and Eve, creation in the beginning, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Pause right there. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What was the temptation of the serpent? What was, what was Eve's response when the temptation was put there? Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it, and she ate it. So professing to be wise, they became fools. It's about the exchange that happened at that point. So professing to be wise, they became fools, Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of God, of the incorruptible God, for the image and the form of the corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then on to our scripture verse that we started with, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts and the impurity. But what we can see happening is that Paul is setting up this argument of this exchange that took place. And it took place when Adam and Eve brought on the sin nature. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible image of God for an image of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals, right? So that instead of worshiping the creator, they exchanged that for worshiping the creatures, for worshiping images and idols. And instead of these natural relationships, and when it says natural, all it means is what was created in the beginning. An exchange for these natural relationships of a man and woman, they exchange it for unnatural relationships. In other words, what God had created and what God had ordained and what God had set up in the original and the perfect creation before sin entered in. Before sin twisted that creation. So is homosexuality something that God desires for us? No, we can't see that it. It's not what he created in the beginning. It is part of the distorted creation. But don't lose sight of the fact that this passage is not about the individual sin of homosexuality. The sin is about the depravity of humanity as a whole. Is homosexuality included? Yes. But so is wickedness and greed and envy 
and murder and strife and deceit and malice and gossiping and slandering and insolence and arrogance and boastfulness and disobedience to parents and unworthiness and unlovingness and un being unmerciful. It's all of humanity. That's, what, that's the argument that Paul is saying, right? Paul's not laying an argument out against homosexuality. Paul is laying out an argument against humanity's need for redemption through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So to this question that asks how how does God see homosexual see the homosexual community? How does God see the homosexual community? That's what this question is asking. God sees every individual in every community, regardless of specific sin, in need of His intervention through the grace of Jesus. It's no different for the person that identifies as a homosexual than for anybody else on this planet. It's not. It's not any different. So where do we go from here? Because now the, the, the natural question, the natural question is going to be, so if I'm gay, can I be saved? That's going to be the question that people are going to take. If I'm gay, can I be saved? Or is there anything, uh, is there any such thing as a, a gay or a homosexual Christian? And now we're going to get into deep water. All right? Because this is the point that I'm risking being misunderstood. But the question's been asked, and so we're going to go there, okay? I don't think anybody can argue with me on this, this, this question. Who can be saved? Who can be saved? Scripture says whoever, right? Whoever believes will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. What he says. He says anybody can be saved. Anybody can be born again. Go back to our, our scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 10. He said, Paul again, he says, 9 and 10, we'll read it again. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, he says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul says some of you were those things. Some of you were those things. In other words, you were these people, and as these people, who were was that entire list of idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and covetous and drunkards and swindlers, as those people, you have not entered or inherited the kingdom of God. But that's not who you are. Because you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified. How? In the name of Jesus, and by the Spirit of God. See, the crux of this matter for me is this question, have you been born again? That's, it's, it's, that's the crux, that's the center of the question. Have you been born again? Have you been forgiven by the blood of Jesus and raised to new life in his resurrection? It's because you believe. I don't care what your individual sin is or were or are, have you been born again? Have you been made a new creature? Do you have the righteousness of Christ on you? That's the center of this discussion. And I cannot determine that for anybody. 
I can't look at somebody and say, you've been born again. I can't do that. It doesn't, it, it, it's, not, it's not for me to say, and I can't do it, because all I can see is outward behavior. And outward behavior might, be, might, might give me some clues, right? It might give me some clues to what's going on, but behavior doesn't determine the salvation that Jesus does. So I can't say definitely or definitively that you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. I can't say it one way or the other. I can't do it. But then what are you saying, Pastor Justin? What are you saying? Are you saying that a practicing homosexual can be a Christian? Here it is. I would say in that case, if there is somebody who is a practicing homosexual, and we'll talk about practicing in a minute, but if there's somebody who is a practicing homosexual, I would say, and they also say that I'm a Christian, we've got two options, all right? Option number one, they're not born again. And they've been deceived and they've not been born again. Option number two is that they have been born again, but that they have been deceived and they have been led astray in their thinking or they have been distracted from the truth of who God says they are. But I have to ask the question, what does it mean to practice sin? What does it mean to practice sin? We all practice sin. You have a problem with porn? Are you practicing that regularly? When was the last time you practiced it? Or just every so often? How about gossip? Are you practicing gossiper? How about exaggeration that teeters on the edge of lying? How about disobeying your parents? It's all in this list. How about getting drunk? How about practicing life, withholding mercy from people who have offended you? Are you practicing that? How about a lifestyle of being proud and bragging? How about being jealous of your neighbor's stuff? How about a lifestyle of pride or arrogance? Is it possible to be born again and yet be deceived and led astray in your understanding to think that whatever your sin is, is somehow justifiable? I think it's possible. Because people across the board do it. Oh, but that's not as serious as, really? Jesus died for all sin. It's all the same. It's all the same. I can't make the determination of who has been born again only God knows that. Do I think homosexuality is what God wants for us? No. Scripture makes it clear that it's not what God wants for us. It's not what he wants for your life. It's a sin, and sin never leads to life. But I can say that same thing about absolutely everything that we've listed as sin so far. It's not different than any of those things. And that's not an exhaustive list. So if I didn't name your sin, you could put your own in there. Right? So what I would say to somebody who identifies as a homosexual and says they're a Christian, what I would say, because I've had this conversation many times and I've had this conversation within this church, I would say to the man or woman who identifies themselves as a homosexual, have you been born again? 
Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And my follow-up to that, my follow-up statement to that is, if you've been born again, I'd like for you to consider your identity. What's your identity? Because what you believe about your identity or who you are will influence and determine your What you believe about your identity will influence and eventually determine your behavior. There's a show on um, on PBS, so probably not many of you have watched it because um, it's PBS. But there's a show on PBS. It's the only place I've seen it. It's called Know Your Roots, and it's a, it's like a genealogy kind of a show. Like they dig, they take a celebrity, or a musician, or an athlete, or whatever, and they. They look at their genealogy. They dig into the birth records and they find out who this person is, what's their heritage. They find letters from like great great grandparents who wrote to one another, you know, long distance and love letters about how I want to see you, and then um, all, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and they they find out who they are. And I love when these people make new discoveries about themselves. And I love when, uh, especially if they come into the show like knowing facts, and then they find out those facts aren't true. I, I, I just think it's like, it totally opens up new doors. The one episode, I think I've watched it twice, and the one episode I watched was with Fred Armisen, who is a comedian, on, he's on Saturday Night Live and, and some other stuff. Um, but he came into the show knowing that he was Japanese. His grandfather was Japanese, I'm a quarter Japanese. Like he's believed that his entire life, that's what his grandma told him, he knew he was partial Japanese, that was his heritage, right? And because of that, he was really into Japanese culture. He had Japanese art in his house, he learned some Japanese uh, language, he, he learned a lot about Japanese history and all that stuff, right? So he surrounded himself with Japanese culture. Guess what? He wasn't Japanese, right? He was not Japanese. He found out on the show that his grandfather was not actually Japanese. He found out that his grandfather was in Japan during World War II, and that's where his grandmother met him. And he was working in Japan as a Japanese performer, dancer, like theater kind of a thing, dancer, but he was actually a Korean spy. To the point that Fred's grandma, who had this fling with this Japanese performer, never found out that the father of her child was not Japanese, but actually Korean. And the look on Fred Armisen's face as he read the document that was on the table in front of him, the look that, that just kind of came over him. He was reading this document, he kind of looked up off in a distance, and he looked at the host and he says, it's changed my whole life. changes my whole world. See, the thing about sexuality in humans is that God created it as such a deep part of us, right? That it's actually part of our identity. When we connect as a husband and wife, Scripture says that the two shall become one. It's the closest possible relationship that people can have with one another. And we connect, we, when we connect, it's so, so close that, we're, that it's said that we're one, right? It is that significant of a part of who we are as people, and it becomes a part of our identity. And for some people, though, it becomes their whole identity. And what we understand our identity to be 
will influence and eventually determine our behavior. Fred Armisen believed that he was Japanese, and he surrounded himself, he immersed himself in Japanese culture. But it's not who he actually was. It's just what he believed about himself, because it's what other people had told him, it's what all the evidence in his life up to that point had led to, and so he made it his identity. Do you think after this new revelation that he was actually of Korean heritage? Do you think that he refused that information and said, nope, I'm Japanese. This is who I am. This is who I will always be. Do you think he refused that? No. I would lay money on the fact that his focus on Japanese culture has had a dramatic shift in the last couple of years because of learning this new truth. He might still have an interest kind of in Japanese culture and Japanese stuff because it's so ingrained in him, because he surrounded himself with it for so long, but it's not who he is. And he knows it. He knows it now for a fact. Here's what I'm saying. As a born-again believer, how do you identify yourself? I'm talking to everybody. Do you identify yourself by your sin? I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm a rebel, I'm a greedy son of a gun. I'm a gay man, a gay woman. Or, am I a born again, righteous child of God who still struggles with addiction or dependence on alcohol or lying or stealing or rebelliousness or greed or homosexuality. It's not who I am because 2 Corinthians 5 tells me that I'm a new creature in Christ, that I'm born again, that I am made new, that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But even in that right now, in this world, I got some struggles, right? I still struggle with that sin because what you believe about your identity and who you actually are will influence and eventually determine your Again, I'm talking to everybody. Regardless of your particular sins, know who you are and who you have been made because of the work of God in Christ Jesus and that his grace alone has made you that way. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're born again. So knowing that, knowing that is a fact for you if you're born again, will you now rebel and cover yourself in the sin that Jesus paid for? Or will you or, or will you approach it and say, well, grace has got me covered. Grace has got me covered, so I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm just going to be who I am, and that's because that's what it feels right, and that's what feels good, or whatever. No. Paul says, shall we, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound more? No, by no means, he says. Listen to me. A real and right understanding of grace and who you are in Christ because of that grace, leads you away from sin, will not lead you into sin. I love this scripture from Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's Titus 2. 
Grace instructs us to live godly lives. Grace does that. Not law, not requirement. Knowing and understanding, embracing, resting in, and wholly depending on grace doesn't allow for a free-for-all like people are scared of. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Grace instructs us in living sensibly and living righteously. Only by embracing grace as the only thing that is sufficient for me are we set free to live righteously. Grace, not law, instructs us how to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. So how do we handle this issue as a church? It's the same way that we handle anything else as a church. We love people. We welcome absolutely everybody in. We share the truth of our collective human and individual lostness without Jesus. We lead people to new life and salvation in Jesus. We share with people that that new life in Jesus means you are literally a new creation. We're no longer any of us who we once were. We teach people to trust the new life and the new creation that they have been made and to trust the Spirit of God to work in them and to mature them. And we encourage people to listen to the Spirit of God and the new heart that they've been given. And in all of this, we operate in grace. Knowing that we all have our issues, knowing that the issues that we wrestle with are all different, and knowing that they're not all obvious. But if we can begin to trust grace, if I can begin to trust grace for me, to be enough for me and my issues as he matures me, I can trust grace to be enough for you, your issues as he matures you. People are going to ask, are you an LGBTQ affirming church? No. Not in the sense that that term is used. I cannot condone, I cannot affirm, I cannot celebrate sin, I cannot affirm drunkenness, I cannot affirm greed, I cannot affirm and celebrate pride, I cannot affirm and encourage homosexuality. But I can walk with people who struggle with greed. Or lust, or drunkenness, or pride, or homosexuality. I can affirm the reality of who you are in Christ when you're born again, despite your struggles. And I can celebrate the reality of your righteousness right now as we mature together. We're a church that recognizes we all need redemption through Jesus, regardless of the issues at hand. We're all in the same boat. We don't pick out specific sins. The message of the scripture is clear that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, all are lost, and all are spiritually dead without Christ. There's a lot of symptoms to that death. It plays out in a lot of different forms. But through Jesus, regardless of the particular sin that we struggle with, we can have life. Genuine, real life now in Him. So I may not know what your struggle is, or maybe I do know what your struggle is. But I know through the resurrection of Jesus that sin and death has been defeated. Sin and death have been defeated already. Now 
Now let's walk in the reality of that victory together. As the worship team comes back up, uh, we are going to go back into a time of, of worship. But we're also using this as a, as a ministry time. Um, we call it prayer time, but it's ministry time. And part of that ministry time is where we minister to one another. Right? This is a priesthood of believers. We all believe that we have the Spirit of God within us if we're born again. Therefore, we have the opportunity to minister to one another. It doesn't just come from here. It comes from there as well for one another. Um, last week, Daniel shared with me after, after service, he said it really felt like during prayer time, Somebody had a word, somebody had, was, was feeling something, but there was hesitancy. So I just want to say that it's okay. God will speak to us all. This is a priesthood of believers. If you feel the Spirit speaking to you, it's okay to move. But we always do that with the condition of saying, you know what, this is what I'm hearing. Does that mean something to you? Can I pray with you about that? Never from the sense of, you know what, God told me that you need to do this. That's assuming a lot of authority. We always approach it with humility and say, I don't, I don't know, but here's what I'm hearing. Okay? Um, you don't have to be afraid. God wants to speak to you, and he wants to speak through you, every single one of us.